0: Let's go. go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even
1: fun. Hey folks, welcome back to Making Data Simple. Al Martin here. I hope you're well. Uh, I keep thinking that it's going to become summer. It keeps going cold, gets warm, but I guess that's the definition of spring. Again, hope you're well. My guest today is Fred Joyle. Fred is an author, speaker, entrepreneur, and business advisor. He co-founded the most successful dentist referral business a service in the, in the country, 1-800-DENTIST. He's written two books on marketing. He's even dabbled in stand-up and improv comedy, acted in bad movies. You know, Fred, you should choose good movies instead of bad movies. But he acted in bad movies, TV commercials. He's a little, So we're taking a pause today. We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have some fun. So with that, Fred, thank you. I appreciate you being here, my friend. My pleasure, Al. All right. So Fred, please give us first thing in your
0: own words. Who is Fred Joy? Basically, I'm an ad man. Uh, I, I started in the advertising world, and that's what led me to create 1-800-DENTIST with a friend of mine, because basically we were an aggregator of all of these dentists, who, and we would run television advertising for them and have a live call center and then disseminate those calls over our thousands of members. Uh, and we, we created the business from nothing. Uh, we had $30,000 of family money to build this entire business and invent it. Uh, and over the course of the 30 years we owned it, uh, we generated over a billion dollars of revenue. So we did way more than we thought we were going to do when we started, but it was all because I understood how to create effective advertising and, and buy media effectively, which also meant we had to track what we would, how the ads were working. Was it generating the kind of patience that we were looking for for our dentists? Uh, so, and, and I became an author and a public speaker, all propelling my business. And now I've written a book on how to cultivate the superpower of boldness because I can't stop writing and and talking about stuff. And it's what I did for myself. I turned myself into a bold person from a very shy person. So I'm a bold introvert, you could say.
1: So what do you consider yourself, though? I mean, of all those things, you know, you you say you started out shy, you've got this new book, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, you've created 1-800-DENTIST. Are you? Who are you? I mean, what would you consider your brand is?
0: My brand, I I think really is more than anything is a a marketing and boldness expert. If I had to uh, humble brag myself, uh, I've learned a tremendous amount about marketing over the years, uh, and, and creating, uh, great messaging, uh, for companies as well as the companies I've been part of and, uh, and built my boldness so that I'm able to communicate in every possible medium really effectively, whether it's one-on-one and it's somebody I want to meet and talk to, or it's on a stage with 5,000 people. Uh, I had to develop this life skill and I want other people to know how to do it because it was a hard journey for me and I figured out how to make it a lot easier for people.
1: So, and you're now the president of the Fred Joyle company. Yes. What yes. Is the uh, the
0: hard-earned role, the, the, you know, the board meeting went on and on forever and I finally got elected president. Uh, it was, it was uh, brutal. Why didn't you just call yourself CEO? And that would have been too much. That would. Know,
1: <laughs> hey,
0: I'm not, I don't, not overreaching, you know, I don't, I wouldn't <laughs> want to do that.
1: And where'd you get the radio voice?
0: Uh, my my dad, <laughs> he's uh, it's his genetics. Uh, my brother has an almost identical voice. It's pretty funny. Uh, and I've and I've had voice training and stuff, but I've always had this voice. So it's it's you know sometimes you 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 get a gift and you gotta if you don't take advantage of it, you're kind of wasteful.
1: So I was looking you up. I, I I see references from all different types of folks. Best selling author of Disrupt You. CEO of Fortune Management, got a Doctor of Arts degree from the University of Rhode Island. And you say, perhaps because generous donations, I'm sure that's not it. You talk about, hey, you once beat Sir Richard Branson in chess, and uh, was also a question on Jeopardy. Man, I got to talk about that. Hold on a second. Avid cyclist, and then you go into below average tennis player, and even worse, golfer. Nice description.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't want people inviting me to golf and hoping that i I'm, I've got a handicap under under uh, you know I, I have a negative fifty handicap roughly. It's a, I measure my handicap in how many balls I go through, uh, which is you know between fifty and seventy five in thirty six holes.
1: Exactly the same way I do it. Well, I'll, I want to talk to one eight hundred dentist and then I'll go to Super Bold, your new book. But before I do. How the hell do you play play chess with Richard Branson? How does that happen? Uh,
0: so I was on Necker Island with a bunch of business folks. You can rent his island. Uh, 30 people can go at a time. And, and he'll be there or not. He actually lives on a nearby island. Uh, and if his wife is not around on the island, he'll bounce over and hang out on Necker and play tennis with people and come to the, some of the meals and stuff like that and, And we were there and playing tennis, uh, a whole bunch of this. And I ruptured my Achilles tendon playing tennis uh, and totally incapacitated. And so and I couldn't go anywhere. So I'm sitting there watching everybody play. And Richard comes over to me. He's heard that I've injured myself. And he says, oh, this is such a bother that this has happened to you. Uh, (laughs) Do you do play chess? And I and I hadn't played chess in forty years, but this is the boldness side of me, right? The shy Fred would have go, "Oh no, I don't really play chess anymore because I was like, oh, what if I lose? What if I embarrass myself with how I'm, how badly I play?" I said, uh, "Yeah, I play chess," and so he calls somebody over and he says, "Get it, get us a chessboard," and we sit on this on this couch uh, and and play chess, and I play such an unorthodox game because I'm so out of practice that he can't figure out what the hell I'm doing. And I beat him. uh, The first game I beat him and he immediately, he calls me a terrible name that we can't say in your podcast and, and immediately (laughs) sets the board up to play again. But this was, this was, and what happened is we started to talk about politics and all sorts of other stuff and found we were really aligned on a lot of stuff. But I also knew it's, I've learned how to meet successful people and treat them like a normal human being. People t- meet him and they're they're interviewing him and they're asking for advice in their business and they're trying to see if he'll invest in their business and all of that stuff. I just talked to him like a normal person. And he loved it to the point where at meals, he would say, sit across from me, sit across from me. He was kind of protecting himself from some of the people who were going to do that. And he, and he wanted to talk about regular stuff uh and so it that all that blossomed from just saying yes that's the lesson say yes figure out what to do
1: did you beat him twice
0: uh never beat him again
1: <laughs> is he never, a good never. no game?
0: no he 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 got a he got a grip on me right at, at that point um and uh and he he cornered me every time after that. But he would find me to play. He'd go seek me out. He'd look for the guy walking around on crutches. And uh, and so that picture I saw you in playing him.
1: You had a uh, ruptured Achilles at the time.
0: Yes. Oh yeah. That was my my leg was uh, totally incapacitated.
1: And a question on Jeopardy. What does that mean?
0: Uh, they just they had a category had nothing to do with it they had a category of 800 numbers on the show and w- one of the one of the answers was fred Joyle sh- shines his pearly whites in this 800 commercial so obviously the the answer the question is what is one 800 dentist so and they just did it because I, I had I was the spokesperson in the 800 dentist commercials for 10 or 15 years. And so I was a recognized spokesperson and it just became a question on Jeopardy. And I had a friend of mine had recorded it as soon as he saw it. He recorded it on his phone. He said, dude, you're on Jeopardy. And I had, had no idea, but it was pretty amazing. Um, just right, one of so those I'm things, wondering- branding things, you know.
1: Well, that's good. Hey, that's good marketing right there too. So what yeah. 800 dentist um, are you a dentist? I mean, do you, no, do you have- No, no,
0: no. I, it was, the randomness of it was just uh, a combination of luck and opportunity. Uh, a friend of mine had the phone number and he had it for five or six years. He got it when 800 numbers first came out and he, he eventually came to me and he says, I think you could, you know, turn this into a business. You're working in advertising, you know, all this stuff. And I said, "Well, I'm not going to work with you because you don't work." <laughs> right? He just—he was an idea man, and he—and he—and this was his flash of brilliance to get this number, and—and uh, and he said, so, "No, no, I understand." Pete best, so
1: though, in the story, though, he must be Pete best in the story, right? He gives you well, the one-eight number. You took he, it off.
0: He with. is. I mean, it's—it's a, it's a long and twisted tale, but—but but we licensed the phone number from him. Uh, and ended up paying him millions over the years for the use of the phone number. Oh well. Uh, but I had another partner thing. who did like to work, who was a great salesperson, and we teamed up. and And just you know, we're friends to this day. Now that's not always the case with people who partner up. You know, the, a lot of things go go wrong, even when it's family. But we we never put money first. That the what we tell everybody, which is the truth, is neither of us know who took more money out of the business because it didn't matter. It was like, he needed, I'm buying a condo this year. I need to take an extra 50 out. Yeah, go ahead. It's like, Oh, I'm buying a car. Okay. Go do it. We, we didn't keep track. We just made sure the other guy had a good life like we did. That's and pretty
1: uh, unique. It, it's yeah. Been, it, wow. That's, that's, that's real trust there. I don't know that anybody could say that anyway. That's pretty cool. Hey, um, so but here's what I don't understand. And I want to get into the, the 1-800-DENTIST, of course, but I know you have two books in the dental industry. One is Everything is Marketing. Maybe it centers around marketing, the ultimate strategy for dentist, dental practice growth. And the other one, Being Remarketable, How to Create a Dental Practice Everyone Talks About. How do you do that without being a dentist or at least certainly you know somebody that's a dentist when you started? No.
0: I, I met hundreds and hundreds of good dentists, great dentists, not so good dentists, or dentists who were really great, who didn't give a good patient experience. And that's why I started to talk to them about marketing, because we were generating potential patients for them and handing them off. And then they were, they were bobbling it. They, they were but dropping the handoff, They were dropping the baton half the time. And and so I said, I've got to teach these guys how to create a patient experience and, and, and that turns that potential that what we would call in the lead business, a warm lead uh, into a productive patient. And so, I, you know, I took all of my knowledge from the advertising world and the marketing world and years and years of, in the dental business and basically laid it out for them how to, how to do this. And these things became the Bible, the marketing Bibles of the industry. They still are. Somebody wrote to me today, actually. She's putting together a a study club uh, on Facebook with my first book. And I just, I got to them because I also being an ad man, I know how to write a book that people want to read. A lot of business books. A lot of the business books I have on my bookshelves, you extract some hard-earned knowledge out of them because they're not written that well. They're not that, you know, easy to read, uh, and so I knew how to make it so that people could absorb them. And I recorded the audio books and everything like that. Uh, but it was really to help them be more productive with the raw material that we were giving them. And, and what it turned into is a speaking career for me. And eventually my reputation separated from 1-800-DENTIST because I had connected with so many more dentists and individuals.
1: And those books were written in 2010, something around there?
0: First one was 2010 and I revised it four times. And finally people said, you just need another book. And so then I, I wrote the other one becoming remarkable, uh, which was more advanced thinking about marketing based on the whole Yelp and YouTube world that we were moving into. And uh, so that came out about eight years ago.
1: So the great thing about doing a podcast is that uh, I can put on whoever I want, whenever I want, that's just the rules of the game. So this is very entertaining and and, uh, I'm, I'm learning a lot here. I'm sure everybody else is at the same time, they're probably saying, does this have a tech connection? And so when I think of dentistry, I don't know that I always think of data, but I got to believe there's an intersection here that you have having built this business.
0: Yes, we, because of the uniqueness of our business is having an 800 number that was a mnemonic, that was a, a, a seven letters that said what we did. We were essentially doing direct marketing like uh, like people who do all sorts of stuff on television and it's like call this number and buy this. All of those businesses use multiple phone numbers so they can track what ads are working, what stations are working, what time slots are working. We had only one source of information, which was how many calls had come in hour by hour uh, because they all came into that phone number. So we had to develop these analytics That told us what ads were working, what stations were working based on subtle changes in the response. Because people would remember our phone number for months. They wouldn't, you know, most direct marketing, it's a 90 second response. They're trying to sell you a Ginsu knife or whatever the heck. And you're going to buy it uh, or you're going to forget about it. So they got to get you to call in 90 seconds. We didn't have to do that. Because we, when they needed a dentist, they remembered our phone number and called it. So the data wasn't immediate; it was it was protracted. So we had to look at these shifts when we would run a new campaign or try a new station. Let's say we we knew that Oprah worked for us, so and and it worked consistently. So if we launched a new campaign normally a new campaign always moves up the response if it doesn't or if it goes down it's the spots uh and so we so we would have to do that with every show every station every time slot every market across the country i mean we had spreadsheets where where my marketing director was looking at everything and my with the media buyer and saying okay what do we change what what worked what didn't work and aggregating everything from the call center that we could get. Uh, when did the, what cities started to call more when we ran the new campaign? What cities, uh, what callers started saying something different over the phone? And we'd say, well, wait a minute, why are they, the, like the worst example was a bunch of people started calling saying, I'm looking for a free dentist. And we'd say, why the heck do they think we have that? <laughs> you know, it's like, we're, everybody's paying us. A dentist who's paying me a uh, hundred bucks a patient, let's say, is, is not looking for somebody who wants free dentistry. So we rewatched the, the TV spot that we had started running and, we, and then we said, oh, I see. We hadn't thought about it at all, but you could misinterpret this spot. Completely, and think you're going to get a free dentist. Message or time of
1: the message? message, s- of the message?
0: Uh, it, it it was it was it was the me- it was the verbiage that was just vague enough in the way we we pushed certain things out that if you're not really paying attention, you could think, "Oh, this is a great place to find a free dentist." So we had to pull the spot immediately. So all of the, it was a combination of. of of what you really have to do with data is data by itself is worthless. Your ability to interpret it accurately is where the business succeeds because we lived by our our profitability was a hundred percent based on placing media effectively because we spent, you know, $30 million a year in advertising. If we spent it wrong, We'd have to spend thirty-five million dollars here, and there goes the profit. Yeah. So th- it was. It was. We got really good at interpreting and analyzing what the data really meant over the years.
1: I mean, I look. I like the your, your point on data. It, it's worthless in, until you're you're able to refine it. It's kind of like when they talk about data being the new oil. I actually like that. Uh, m- most people are sick of that.
0: That,
1: you know, that uh, you know phrase now, but I actually like it because I think it does apply. But if you can't refine it, you you've really got nothing, and you, your your story just proves that. Was the monetization strategy just a referral, and is it a one time referral, or was it more like a subscription? Another no, it was it-
0: a one time thing. That was the the flaw in the business model is that there was no way to attach ourselves to the value that, of, of the patient. Now, if, if I referred a patient that, that did a full set of dental implants and spent $40,000, I get the same amount as the person who came in for a cleaning because of the laws against me splitting any revenue with a healthcare provider. There are, yeah. are fee-splitting so, yeah. laws.
1: It's not that you didn't think about it. just couldn't you?
0: Couldn't, <laughs> I thought about it a lot. <laughs> I'm sure
1: you thought about I th- I it. I
0: thought too. about as many end runs as I could come up with, but I yeah. never came up with any that were legal.
1: Well, I you also that. went California. You're not going to get way of uh, a much. Uh,
0: <laughs> no, they're looking, you. they're watching us.
1: So. <laughs> exactly. But you did well. I mean, obviously, I, hey, it are. was a,
0: a great business. Google eventually disintermediated us, but it took them a decade to do it uh, because people just they don't use eight hundred numbers that much anymore, and it's very easy to find a dentist. You hold up your phone and say "dentist near me." Uh, so eventually, it they torpedoed us enough that that it pretty much sank. I mean, we we never run TV ads or anything. The biz, the people who own the business now, it's just a, a lead gen business. And using all digital media.
1: I want to talk about super bold, the no book, the new book.
0: Yeah. Yes. Uh,
1: that you have out there. And um, uh, all right. So the first question is is you kind of talked to this earlier, but I still got to ask it anyway. What makes you think, hey, I'm gonna write this book because it doesn't exist anywhere else around about being super bold? And to continue, it says, from underconfident to charismatic in 90 days. Why write this book?
0: I was talking to a group of high school students. I was actually part of this mentor group. And so each of the mentors prepared uh, a presentation for the, the high school kids on what we had learned in life. And one of the things I said to the kids is boldness is a superpower. You'd be amazed at the opportunities that come to you when you don't hesitate, when you step up, when you speak up, when you try stuff, when you don't fear rejection, when you don't fear failure, you just put yourself out there. And they said, that's great. How? How do I go from shy me or underconfident me uh, to that? And I, I said, well, I did it. Let me figure out how I did it and put it into a book. And that's what I actually spent a few years just making notes on it and then when COVID hit I said now's the time to, to crank out this book uh, because I had sold one 800 Dennis, and I was very passionate about helping people become bolder because I saw the difference it made in my life and I also had all the missed opportunities aggregating in my younger life that still gnawed at me and I said I gotta help people not do this I, I want people to know what I wish I knew at 20 years old or 30 years old. So that's, that was the germination of the book. And it's, it's really been great. I mean, it became an Amazon and wall street journal bestseller in the first month that it came out uh, just because it resonates with people. There's so many people in every career, in every stage of their life that are struggling with their confidence and knowing that they're missing opportunities in life personally business everywhere
1: so i'm going to throw you a softball here it, it, it's going to appear like this question is undermining some way and it's not here's the question isn't it just showing up i mean like i've actually got a um, like a little sign on my monitor that says show up for this reason it is to when something occurs there's an event say yes show up it's Brene Brown talks about it like, is it being in the arena? Find your way yeah. to be in the arena. She she talks about, which I love this part of her book, where it says, you know, I have zero res- respect for anybody in the stands. You know, that's easy. They, yeah, they, jeering they
0: from it. the cheap seats. Yep.
1: Yes. I mean, w- put yourself in the arena. In fact, when I talk to a lot of my team, I'm all talking about, hey, why aren't you in the arena right now? Yes, it's scary out there. That's what the lions are. But that's where things happen. So why is that not enough? And so, the second part of that question is a long-winded question, I guess. Is it meant for everybody? Some people are just shy. Their character is like, I, like my wife. If I wanted to put her in front of five thousand people, she would go ballistic. She—that's just not her. No, <laughs> yeah. even in our wedding, she didn't want the <laughs> attention. I said, "This is our wedding. This is—you're we going to get some attention." That she just doesn't like attention.
0: Just a well, a, no, it's—it's a person. If you—if it's a, pers- if you, if you, it's a- You only need to do something with it if it's not working for you. If you feel like you're missing out, you're not living the life you want, you're not able to chase your dreams because of your lack of confidence. Some people don't like crowds and audiences and stuff like that. This isn't about just becoming a public speaker, which it certainly could be. And you need to, you know, in most businesses in in life now, you need to be good in front of people. And you need to know how to network in a way that actually connects with people rather than just, oh, I I need to get their business card or their phone number or their email address, but like to create real human connection. So a lot of what I talk about in the book is is how to connect like a human being. What social skills are you lacking because you're not interacting enough? We are social creatures. Now, she may never want to be Uh, speaking on on a public stage, but she is very likely going to want to eulogize one of her friends who passes away. And you're going to want, if you don't do that, and you want to do that because you go, oh, I don't like to speak in public, you're going to regret that the the rest of your life. So this is about to be able to call on your confidence and act when it matters, when it matters to you specifically about what, is important to you what you want to achieve but the voices in your head are holding you back how do you defeat that you can't just defeat it by show up but if i had to give you two words i would say step up step into your discomfort zone knowing that the good stuff is on the other side and you have to start gradually enough and that's how the book is designed with exercises that move you up gradually to build your confidence and boldness so that you, you get a positive feedback loop from doing it and you build your boldness muscle. Bold people, they don't look at failure as a reason to retreat. They, they look at it as information. They take it that simply. They don't Rejection says, I, I have to change my pathway. Failure says, what, what can I learn from this so that the next time I succeed or the next time after that I succeed? Failure are steps up bold people and it's just a, a, a shift in mindset because a lot of people they they fail once there's a there's an amazing statistic and I'm gonna I'm gonna rough it uh is that um something like uh 80 percent of restaurants uh first-time restaurant owners fail 80 percent of them
1: that's pretty scary
0: <laughs> yeah um Second-time restaurant owners, they succeed 70% of the time. Second, All it takes is the second time. But only 40% of restaurant first-time restaurant owners try again. So the odds flip in their favor if they just take another swing at it. By the third time, and, and every entrepreneur I know has had failures under their belt that, that were all, was all information on how to succeed. It's like, oh, I didn't listen to the marketplace. They were telling me this and I gave them that. But part of that I gave them, they kind of liked, I need to build a business around that. And so, and it, and it, and it goes into your personal life. You, you wanna meet somebody, walk up to them, introduce yourself, see what happens. You're not going to be good at it, meeting strangers right away, but you need to talk to strangers every day and you'll get good at it and you'll get better and better and better at it. And you'll relax and have a normal conversation and and invite people in.
1: Stepping back for a second, one, congratulations on the bestseller. That's awesome. Um, Thank you.
0: Where did you develop your
1: expertise in being bold?
0: The hard way, the slow way, (laughs) you know, one, one step at a time, you know, with failures gnawing at me, but the real, along with all of the things that I just, I was so angry about missing opportunities and not trying stuff and then trying the business and realizing I got to make this work and it made me have to be bolder. And then it created this feedback loop that's like, oh, when I am bold, good things happen. Instead of all the bad things I thought I was going to experience, 99% of the time, something good happens. It's either good information or an undiscovered experience or exactly what you were going for. And this is what bold people know. Bold people never stop themselves. This is, this is, they, they, and and everybody else, we stop ourselves. We don't wait till somebody else stops us. Bold person always waits until somebody else is the one who stops them. And Makes I don't sense. think I answered your question. I think I went but, completely. But, <laughs>
1: that that that's well. I mean, I got more questions. That's fine. We'll keep going. I mean, the, you know, the one thing that occurs to me that there was something that resonated with me um, along these lines and in accordance with what you were saying before. You just you just keep going at it. I was watching, I don't know, it was a. It was either a podcast or a show, I can't remember, but there was a gentleman that could not handle failure. So what he decided to do is to fail like 20 times a day or something like that. So what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is he would walk up to somebody on the street and say, hey, can I have $100? I mean, just at first I thought that was just silly. But you know what? When you get he so he's getting rejected over and over and over. And by the way, so a lot of people gave him a hundred dollars. I mean, for no reason. I mean, it, it, but the thing is, is he got used. He said it was the best thing I could have done, because I got used to failing, so I wasn't scared anymore, and I would just go out and I would be bold. do you have antidotes?
0: I mean, that's in the book? that's the exercises in the book. There's five levels of exercises, and they start non-verbally. And many of the exercises are designed for failure. Like, I want you to go out and smile at 10 people today, 20 people today, smile at everybody you meet until somebody doesn't smile back and then don't take it on and realize one, how many people did smile back and then realize that that just let go of that fear, oh, There must be something wrong with me. That person could be having the worst day of their life or they could have bad teeth. You know, they don't know. You don't know why they're not smiling back. You don't have to take it on. And then then there's another exercise I love people to do is when you see a sign that says on a door that says employees only go in. Nothing bad will happen. You, and not, there's no risk involved because you don't need to go in there. <laughs> so you're going in to teach and and you'll listen listen to the voice in your head. They'll say, oh, I can't go in there. There's a sign. Uh, somebody's going to yell at me. So Nobody's going to do anything that actually physically harms you. We fear the harmless all the time. It's ridiculous. But it's how we're programmed. And so when you do that and you walk through the door listening to the crazy voice in your head, Nothing happens on the other side. The most that's going to happen, the worst thing that's going to happen is somebody's going to say, this is for employees only. Uh, and and to which you can say, I am an employee, just not here. Uh, and they will look at you like you're an idiot and you'll leave. But And, and then you walk out and realize, wow, I, I had a, all sorts of anxiety about something that ridiculous. And you build up your boldness muscle by Aiming for failure on all of these things, I'm going to compliment the stranger, to, you know, to see if I get a negative reaction. And you'll say, "Oh, they don't want to talk to me." There's a another study that that showed that they they surveyed people in New York who you, rode the New York subway, and eighty yep. percent of them said they would never start a conversation with anybody in the subway. 60% of them said they'd be happy to have a conversation with somebody if they started it. <laughs> so we're just nuts. We're just afraid to talk to people because we, we're, what? what's the worst that could happen? They go, they give us the cold shoulder. Why do we have to take that on? What bold people have learned to do is not take it on. Rejection bounces off of them. Failure is a step up. And it's, it's just from practice. That's why all my exercises are designed to move you up by a controlled level of intensity. I call it dosage in the book. It's like you want to move into your discomfort zone, but you don't want to go deep into it. You want to work your way deeper and deeper gradually and then retreat back into your comfort zone. But you don't want to scare yourself back into your shell for the rest of your life. So what happens is you say, wow, wow. Everything I thought was bad was going to happen didn't happen and something interesting happened and it was kind of fun.
1: One of my favorite quotes makes me think of my, one of my favorite quotes is by Michael Jordan. When he says I missed more than 9,000 shots in my career, I've lost almost 300 games, 26 times I've been trusted to take the game winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over in my life. And that's why I succeed. I think it's terrific. Um, Yeah. so, So let me ask you this. Can Back to my my wife,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. can, can everybody learn to become super bold and do you see that a direct correlation to being successful if you are super bold? Uh,
0: there is an absolute d- direct connection between boldness and success because you need to be bold to ask for the order. You need to be bold to recruit employees and give them feedback. You need to be bold to take feedback so that you can get better. You need to be bold and confident to raise money for your business. You need to be bold to sell confidently and attract customers and do those things that make you unique. Without that, it's gonna be a struggle and it's it's gonna be a pathway to mediocrity, if not failure and disappointment A fulfill. The thing about doing all this stuff is eventually you get realized that trying feels almost as good as trying and succeeding because you don't have to beat yourself up for not trying. You, you walked across the room and introduced yourself to that attractive woman or interesting business person or whatever, instead of standing there going, Oh, they probably don't want to talk to me. And then you never meet them, and they, and you say, "Wow, you had the chance to." Who who was in the room? Did you talk to him? Uh, no, because you know they probably wouldn't have been interested in in me. Bold people don't listen to that voice when they hear when they hear themselves saying it. They say, "Nope, I'm going to walk across the room and intro, introduce myself to the governor anyway, even though the voice says he's not going to be interested in me." It's a powerful thing to to. Oh, just transform yourself so that wherever you are you belong there your mindset is you belong there now you don't your wife doesn't have to be the center of attention but she can talk to anybody she wants to and she can express herself comfortably she's she's not in that situation where there's there's fear when she says i don't want to talk to anybody at my wedding there's a fear factor in that that is a personal anti-social experience that she's having because she feels unsafe and there's no reason to feel unsafe except the voices in our head. And, 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 and it doesn't mean she's going to be the life of the party everywhere she goes (laughs) or that she needs to be. Um, but, and, 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 you know, if I go to a party and I meet one person that I go deep on, and get to really know what they're about, what matters to them, that's good for me. I don't need to know everybody at the party. I don't need everybody to know me at the party, but I want if, if there's a person I want to talk to at that party, I want to be able to walk up to them and have a conversation, a normal conversation. And I talk about how to do that in the book. I talk about how to make whoever you meet feel like the most interesting person in the room. And it's really easy. But you have to have to know how to do it. Nobody teaches us this stuff. They're busy teaching us math and calculus and and
1: yeah, I got it. I got English it English yeah.
0: grammar, which has all disappeared because of texting. you know. So the English <laughs> grammar will eventually be all emojis and and acronyms. That's it. that will That'll be what they teach kids in first grade eventually.
1: So let me ask a couple more questions. I know that um, when many of us are listening to you. Uh, Even like when you talk about going into the employees only, I'm the type that probably would do it, particularly if somebody said, I dare you to do it or something, I just do it. Now, having said that, when you think about it, there is anxiety that creeps up, even when I'm even listening to you talk about it. Are there ways that you can relax in anxiety in any situation?
0: Yes. And I talk about that in in, in the book as well. There's, there's five steps uh, of building your confidence and boldness called the pride method. The first step is preparation, preparing what you're going to say, what you're going to do. The, the, the second step is to relax and it involves controlling and changing your physiology and breathing primarily. I talk about it in detail, but there's stuff you can do that immediately relaxes you. And then Have the insight is the I, which is nothing bad is actually going to happen. And people aren't really thinking about me anywhere near as much as I think they are. They're thinking about themselves and insights like that. you got to change how you see that. Then dosage. And then the final, the E is really important, is everyday action. Work on building your boldness muscle every day. Talk to a stranger every day. Do one of the boldness exercises every day. Do two or three. And that changes how your brain sees you. And you're constantly learning till your brain goes, I guess this is our default mode. And it becomes that way. You literally build new neural pathways by doing it every day. So yes, there is a way to relax you. And preparation relaxes you. Preparing in your mind what you're going to say relaxes you. Telling the voice in your head to shut up relaxes you.
1: You know, one thing you say resonates with me. I firmly believe it. And I say this to my kids all the time is that they're not thinking about you. (laughs) Even when you're presenting, most of them are thinking about themselves. Now, maybe themselves as it relates to you, but they're thinking about themselves almost 99% of the time, you know? So you've done a lot of presentations or uh, you get out in public speaking. Is this on behalf of the book?
0: Yeah, that's primarily what I speak on now is uh, cultivating the superpower of boldness.
1: Where can folks find you or find you next?
0: So uh, go to my website, fredjoyle.com. You can download the first chapter of the book. And of course, the book is on Amazon and Kindle and Audible. And it's me reading the book. So it'll be my voice in your head telling you to get out there and and be bolder.
1: All right. Two questions before I break. One question is, look, I think I could be a better networker. I mean, I do pretty good. But it's never enough. I mean, in fact, I, I, this stuck with me. When I took my MBA, they talked about like advancement and career advancement. They said something like at the time, 70% of career advancement involves networking and who you're, you're, um, you're surrounding yourself with. One, do you agree? Is there updated statistics on that? And what would your simple piece of advice for me be?
0: Yes, there's tons of data on that. There's a great book, Who Not How. Uh, that basically says most of your problems are going to be solved by finding the right person to help you solve them or solve them for you. Most 80% of employees are hired by word of mouth, despite all of the job search sites out there. So it, it is, you're going to meet people and, and you, you truly are the aggregate of the five people you spend the most time with. So up the quality of those people all the time by, by networking, but networking not to gain them. This is the key, is none of your networking has an ulterior motive. None of it has an anticipated outcome except to connect with that person. When you do that, it changes the whole process. You're just moving ahead, being interested in them and trickling out who you are based on how interested they are in finding that out. But the goal is to find out who they are, what matters to them. And, you know, whether it's as simple as how'd your week go? What's I love asking people, what's the most interesting thing that's happened to you this week or even this month? and it is, And then
1: your line that you use most often when you're trying to, when you want to introduce yourself? To I'll walk
0: up and say, you know, it depends who they are, but I'll walk up and say, hi, I'm Fred. I'd really like to meet you. Oh, I'm so-and-so, you know, I'm Al. I'd say, give me a sense of who you are. What's the most interesting thing that's happened to you this week? Nice. And then they'll, they'll have to think about it. And, and sometimes they'll go, wow, not that much. And I'll say, all right, how about last year? <laughs> I'll stick with it. I'm not giving it, I'm not going to go off, offer my side of it. This is, this is the real key to talking to people is instead of offering, playing ping pong back and forth with, with everything say, tell me more about that. They said, well, the most interesting thing was actually, I, I went to Toronto and I, I went up in that high tower that they have there. And I, you know, I, I walked on the plexiglass scared the heck out of me and i say really tell me more about that well i i need to know where how did this happen prompted you to even do that and i tell me more tell me more and then eventually you you add a little bit about yourself but then you go but enough about me how did you how do, how do you know the host at this party how you know how how do how can you afford this house <laughs> you, know, with that, you know whatever it is you know uh very nice. You know, what's what, what's the worst job? I love asking. I used to ask all my new employees, what's the worst job you ever had? And it would be and it, we would do it in a room with their I would always go into the training sessions and introduce myself. And it was fascinating to listen to their worth, worst job and why it was the worst job. It informed me how to be a better leader and a better boss and create a better workplace. Um, but some people have most people, uh, most people who've succeeded in life have had a really shitty job or two, or ten, somewhere along the way. A bad <laughs> boss, a bad job, a bad bad pay, bad boss, bad job in combination. Uh, so often they go together.
1: Absolutely, we have. And, you know, my two questions are, what's your first concert? I think you can uh, learn a lot about people's first concert. So, Fred, what's your first concert?
0: Elton John. <laughs> and it, and And his bass player was sick. And this was back when Elton John only he came out with a drummer and a bass player and him on piano. So all he had was a drummer. Uh, and this was 1971. He went on anyway and and it was totally captivating from one second to the next. Um, and I was, I I thought this guy's, he's just playing piano with a drummer. It's like, he, it's not even a a trio, (laughs) you know, it's, and, uh, you, yeah, you
1: think when he got done, he he was like looking at the bass player and said, "Hey, uh, I just had a magical night. I'm not sure we need you on the payroll." Yeah, nah,
0: nah. well, at least the cut and pay was coming <laughs> <Yeah>. as well. <laughs> you All are second. you are peripheral to this success.
1: Second question I always ask is, "What do you do for fun? What do you do for fun, Fred?"
0: Any anything that anybody throws at me that's physical to try. And it could be like I was just in this whole virtual reality place that was, you know, fantastic. Or I'll bungee jump, I'll ski, I'll, I'm trying to learn snowboarding. I have never fallen so much in my life. Um, I, I was invited on a bike ride in Sardinia for five days, which was madness because it was nothing but hills. Um, so and anywhere anywhere in the world that that is a physical challenge, it's physical fun. I'm, I'll, I'll I say yes, and and I'm sort of refusing to acknowledge that I'm getting older because my body is not as willing every year that I tee up these things.
1: I always lie. I got one more question before I end, and another question I always ask is, "What is a book you recommend that's not yours?" Is the most common book you recommend? So everybody's got to go get Super bold. All right, they're all
0: listening. Right. They're let's be- let's I, yeah. Let's let me just say it, it all starts with my book, and everything <laughs> flows from that. You know, it's it's uh, Victor Frankel's book, uh, "Man's Search for Meaning."
1: Oh, nice. Uh, All right, I like that.
0: Which is, what? you know, he's an he's a concentration camp survivor, uh, mm-hmm. and if that guy can come away with a positive outlook and a sense of meaning about life, then you've got nothing to complain about, basically. Uh, and it's full of just amazing insights uh, into facing reality. And, and what, you, what we're capable of enduring.
1: Very good. Thank you for being here. As we close, if you were to give like a one-minute infomercial on your book, something maybe I missed or that you want to make sure it gets out there, what would it be?
0: The only person you need permission from to have the most satisfying, fun-filled, adventurous, joyful, love-filled life, the only person you need permission from is you. so the clock is running. Get out there and be bolder.
1: All right very good. go to Fred's website. We'll put everything in the show notes. Thank you for being here Mr. Fred Joyle. It was a great talking to you. Um, I learned a lot it was fascinating for you all the folks listening on the podcast be well. Hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know of guests you'd like to see on. Until next time, we'll see you on the podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple Podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out.